Okay, if you want to turn to your text, 1 Peter 5, three verses. These are Peter's final words to, to the people. So it, it, it might be easy for us to look at these last three verses and not think that there's anything worthwhile within them. Because, um, you know, it talks about people that we don't really know. It's kind of like, is this just superfluous? We just put it at the end of, he just put it at the end of this letter like uh, we put, you know, uh, kind regards at the end of our letters. Um, is there anything really good in this to take from as compared to the meat of the theological discussions and of the pastoral care that came before this? But I personally feel like in letters and even in our lives, like the bookends of our, of our lives and of letters are really important. You know, a lot, of, a lot of life, most of life is lived in the midst of things, in the middle of all things. But then there's these points in our lives where, there, where there's transition or something is beginning and something is ending. And if we allow God to speak to us in those places, those can be some of the most exciting times and also some of the most terrifying times, right, when something's coming to an end. But it also provides kind of this place to pause and think back into what have we heard in our lives? What have we heard in the text as we're concluding with this? It also gives us an opportunity to pause and look forward, like, what's after this? We've been in this season of life. We've been in this chapter of Cornerstone. We've been in this uh, movement of God, and it, it's coming to an end, and now what might God have for us? And so rather than just tune out at like the first three verses of something and the last three verses of something, I would ask you to consider, um, even if it's not outright, the importance of these as, as sacred scripture and what they could speak to us. Um, so First Peter 5, verse 12, by Silas, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So Peter ends this message kind of telling his audience, telling the church what his hope was in writing this, right? He wanted to write to them briefly to testify about who Jesus is, to testify about how, who they are in Christ and to encourage them that the idea of all this suffering that they're going through is also linked to glory in Christ. And all of this is grace, even when you're at this point where you feel like you can't go on, even when you're at this point of, I don't know if I believe what I used to believe, because my circumstances uh, have not worked themselves out in the way that I would have liked. And yet Peter is saying here, you know, I have written to you briefly to exhort you, to encourage you, to declare that this is the true grace of God, to testify that all of this that both this suffering and this glory and what Jesus did on the cross and how that changes us and enters us into a new family and into a new worldview and into a new plot in life that's not free from pain, but that reconfigures and realigns our hearts is what he was hoping to do. And a lot of times we can deal with this 
we can identify with this because we say things to people with a hope of that they'll get something from it. When we say things to people, like if I say something to Stephen, I want to encourage him. And I want to encourage him. But my words don't necessarily ring true with him. Like, I think all of us to some point know that feeling where we say something that we want to bless people with, and yet it's not received. Or it's just like, what are you talking about? And so Peter's kind of being vulnerable here. Like, this is, this is why I wrote to you, because I love you, and I want to tell you the truth of the grace of all of this. You know, in between the lines, I pray that you receive it. I pray that you listen deeply to what I've said, to what the Spirit of God has said through me to you. So Peter is giving his purpose. Peter is also giving his last command. There are 74 imperatives, that means commands, in the scripture that Peter talks about. The first one isn't until verse 13 or 14 or 15 or 16. But the last one shows up here, and it's a funny one. The last command that Peter leaves with the congregation, with the church, is what? Greet one another with the kiss of love. Out of all of the things that he said, out of all the 73 other commandments that he gave, this is the final sticking point. You know what I mean? That I want you to greet one another with a kiss of love. And there's two reasons he's doing that. But first, we're going to talk to our neighbor again about kissing. Not really, but... What is your family's tradition of showing affection to one another? What is your family's tradition of showing affection to one another? Could be when you were younger. Could be now with your friends and and friends too, close friends too. What is your family's tradition of showing affection to one another? Go ahead and talk to your neighbor for a minute about what that tradition is in your So my immediate family, as in like our household, tend to, be, tend to be huggers a little bit more so. Although I think I've actually learned to hug through Cornerstone over the past 20 years. Um, but so Naomi grew up a little bit more f- uh, physically conservative, so to speak, in her household. And then my, my family, my biological family, tends to be more liberal, so to speak, in uh, their physical affection. And one of the, the funny and awkward things at one point of our marriage was... Um, you know, introducing and, you know, going in to give hugs and somebody uh, planting their lips right on Naomi's lips as the, like, the nor- it was normal. You know, it was normal for our, that side of the family. Be like, what, whoa, whoa, what's, what's going on here? And then my, and then my dad does that, my dad does that with our, our kids, with the little ones. And then, so, um, and he has a mustache too, which I can't even think about what that feels, like a caterpillar, what that feels like to, to go on. Um, but he'll do that and kiss, kiss uh, uh, the twins, three-year-olds, on their lips sometimes. It's tradition, so to speak. And then they started doing that to us, which, again, is just not my comfort zone and a, tradi- a tradition we quickly left to the side. But when you're not expecting to get kissed on the lips by somebody, and, like, all, like, good intention, nothing, you know what I mean? Like, this isn't an unholy thing. Even when the intention is legit and holy and everything like that, it's weird. When you get, when you get kissed on the lips, I'm just like, why is there saliva on my mouth that's not mine? And so all that, to, all that to say is that different families have different traditions of how they show physical affection 
to one another. The idea that Peter is commanding the church family to greet one another with a holy kiss might seem weird to us. And I couldn't find in my little research on kissing in biblical times what that meant. Like, was it like a kiss on the cheek? Was it, was it a, you know, a mouth plant? I don't know. Um, so don't, don't let your mind go too far down that road. But he was still commanding them to greet one another with a kiss of love. And I think there was two reasons for this that are really important. Um, the first one is, is that in ancient Near Eastern times, a kiss of love, a kiss of affection was a family thing. Was a family thing. So, Josh, I'll pick on you. I might kiss my brother, biologically speaking, on, on the cheek. You know what I mean? Because that's part of our tradition. Because we're family. And that's normal. But then I meet Josh. We're going we're gonna to handshake. We're going we're gonna to hug, probably. I'm, not, I'm probably not going to kiss Josh. Because he's not a family member. And that's not what we do. Peter is hinting at, and something that he's gone over and over again, that there is this new family in Christ. As he is commanding, greet one another with a kiss of love, he is saying that you are brothers and sisters. That the bonds that we have in some of these traditions that we have that are good, that are holy in our culture, so to speak, that are for family, let's show those things to one another as family. I'm not telling you, Cornerstone, to go around kissing each other, but I want you to consider the fact of what are our familial affections towards one another that are appropriate, but that identify us as family. That for a stranger, we might not give a hug. Or to somebody that's acquaintance, we might not give a hug. But Josh, being my brother in Christ, part of the family, that I might give a hug. What are those things that we're... So Peter is saying, you are family, you should receive one another and greet one another as family. Because actually the spiritual bond you share with one another goes beyond the biological bond that you had previously. That we are a new family together. The second thing I believe he is doing um, is that it reinforces the kiss, the physical, tangible, tactileness of this. It reinforces the grace that we are to walk out. Okay? So uh, I'm going to read what one com- how one commentator put it. The call for a kiss of love turns the attention of the readers from the composition of the letter, okay, so how the letter was put together, the way that it was spoken and all that. It turns it away from that to the faces of those who are around them. The purpose of the letter is not to produce a rich reading or listening experience, even if it does manage to do that. While there's a lot of truth that Peter is speaking You know, the Holy Spirit is speaking the word of God to us through this letter. That's great. That's awesome. We're hearing it. But it's not just randomly, abstractly up there. The purpose of the letter is to guide the behavior of these Christians in their relationship with one another as well with their non-Christian neighbors. And so by Peter saying, I want you to greet, final, final command, final imperative, I want you to greet one another with a kiss of love. He's saying all this stuff that I just said, that you just heard, that you're going to read over again in community is great. But don't forget the fact that we're not called as Christians just to think about things. 
We're not called as Christians just to work on doctrine and what is true and what is not, which is important, which is good, but that the outworking of our faith and of us following Jesus needs to be tactile, so much so that we are to greet one another with a kiss of love. And so we can keep all of these ideas about being a new family and being reborn into a new and living hope and all of this stuff out there, but it needs to not just be out there. It needs to be in here and then worked out among us. That the idea that we're touching one another and in one another's lives is what the gospel of transformation is about. It's not some kind of intellectual assent that by being right, uh, transformation is going to happen in our lives and in the lives of the community around. So I believe that Peter is doing that as he's giving his final command. He's saying that you are family and don't let this, these words I say stay head knowledge. Work this out. Greet one another with a kiss of love. You are family. Do families uh, operate perfectly? Do Christian families operate perfectly? Near. But you're still family. You're still family. Let's work this out together. So we got Peter's uh, purpose. We got Peter's uh, final command. And then we have the final blessing from Peter. So Peter commands a kiss, but what he does in his last sentence and his last phrase is that he blesses the people with peace. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The Greek equivalent of the Hebrew shalom, of wholeness. That the idea of pronouncing wholeness over these people as the letter is closing. That those who are suffering, he is saying, be whole in Jesus. That those who are going through all their doubts of faith and of life, he's saying, be whole, be whole in Christ. He's saying to those that feel broken, that feel inadequate and feel incomplete, which all of us at some point in our life can identify with, that Peter is speaking blessing of peace and of wholeness over those places. And those are things that we need to hear from one another. That when Josh is in a place of brokenness and is feeling a place of being incomplete, that him as my brother, him as a friend in Christ, that I'm speaking those words, that I'm blessing him with peace, that I'm reminding him of who Jesus is and who he is, who Josh is in Christ, regardless of the circumstances that are around. And so while this letter might be 2,000 years old, all of us know what it feels like to have doubt and to suffer and to feel incomplete. And now let's also try to experience the idea of hearing somebody speak wholeness over us, of speaking peace over us. Let us do that for one another, not as some like greeting card thing. There might be times where we need to speak another word over one another. We might need to speak the word repent, but I'm with you. There might need to be a a time where uh, we say you need to trust and you need to step out and have courage, but I'm with you. But then there's also places where we need to speak peace and wholeness over one another. So in these few last lines, we have Peter's purpose, we have uh, Peter's last command, and we also have Peter's uh, blessing, his final blessing in the letter. Scattered throughout this, if you notice, there's, there's three different names, so to speak, or titles that kind of talk about Peter's immediate family. We have Silas, or some of you might in your text um, have uh, Silvanus. Yeah. That is the full Greek name of Silas. Sorry, I guess it would be the same thing. The full Roman name of, 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 of Silas. 
So I'm going to use the word Silas because I can pronounce that better. Um, so Silas is here. And there's this thought about what, what was Silas's thing here? What does it say here that, you know, I've, I uh, regard him as a faithful brother. I have written briefly to you by Silas. So Silas is who we see in Acts walking around um, uh, the ancient Near East with Paul. He was a prophet according to the scriptures. And he was on uh, different kinds of mission trips with Paul. Sometimes they got in fights. Sometimes they were working well with one another. Here, what Silas is part in the body of Christ, in the writing of this letter, is not, we don't specifically know, but it's probably one of two things, maybe both things. One, he was the scribe. Okay, he could have been the scribe of the letter. So, let's say uh, Vicky is Peter, and Vicky is writing this letter to the church in Turkey that is going to be First Peter. Vicky is speaking to me, Silas, and I am writing down what Vicky is saying. And we also know through other uh, ancient means that um, I, Silas, get a little bit of wiggle room in what Vicky is saying. I need to say what Vicky is saying, but if there's, uh, uh, if, if uh, Vicky's uh, Aramaic or Greek isn't necessarily um, up to snuff and she's saying something kind of weird, but I know what she's saying, then as a scribe, I actually have the freedom while being grounded in what she's saying to communicate what she's saying by, by not necessarily dictating word for word what Vicky is saying. So he could have been a scribe. And, you know, Peter would have looked over the letter being like, yeah, yeah, this is, this is what I said. This is what I'm doing. But there was also this interaction. It wasn't just that he was a note taker. There was this trying to convey what Peter was saying in, to the church as he's listening and writing it down. So he could have been a scribe. One of the other things, he could have been the carrier of the letter. Meaning like there wasn't uh, the Pony Express necessarily or UPS that flew this letter around Turkey. That Silas could have been the one that carried the letter. He bore the scripture and he went to these places. And then if he also um, bore the scripture, he probably also spoke the scripture. That, that there's this idea that Peter might have talked to uh, Silas about um, how to say this phrase. Because information is information. We can read the text, but we can't necessarily hear the intonation of the text. So I could say to Matt, fear not. Or I could say to Matt, no, fear not. I could have kind of this tone in my voice where I'm kind of condemning Matt. And sometimes when we read the scripture, there are other voices besides the Holy Spirit that we're, we're reading it with a different kind of intonation, a different kind of uh, way it's being said. And something that's actually meant to be um, something that's encouraging, we take as shameful. On the other side of things, sometimes when a word is actually strong and we need to hear it, Sometimes we want to kind of pacify it a little bit. Because that's what text does. The word of God is living and active, but the text, how was this text said? So Silas would have been somebody that was reading this letter to the church with the different kind of uh, inflections, the different kind of uh, uh, emphases on certain emphasis, emphases, emphasis, emphasis, different kind of, yeah, focuses, foci. On, on, those, on, those, on those sorts of things. And so he was either uh, a scribe as part, of, uh, as part of God's way of getting the scripture out, or he was a, bear, a bearer, a carrier of the scripture in those places. And then we also have this, this woman. She 
who is in Babylon. This could be Peter's wife. A couple of people think that it might be Peter's wife that Peter is saying, hey, my wife that is in Babylon with me is saying hi to all of you. It's more than likely uh, uh, the church in Rome personified. It's more likely the church in Rome personified. So he's saying the church from Rome, he's using the, the code name Babylon, greets you, you know, sends, sends its greetings, uh, is, is thinking about you, is, is praying for you. And by using the word Babylon, he's doing two things. He's linking one of the themes of the book of exile to the idea of the Babylonian exile. In fact, yeah, yeah you feel like strangers on earth. You feel like this isn't necessarily your home. You feel like you're in exile because, you know, the, the, the kingdom of God has come, but yet not yet in the fullness of it. And you're going through all this stuff because of your faith. And even though you're doing the right thing and the true thing and worshiping the right God, circumstances aren't lining up. And he's also using the term Babylon for the fact that, did Babylon exist anymore? No. And just as Rome is oppressing the Christians, and just as the dark and evil powers and principalities that are behind that persecution will one day fall, he's linking back to the fact that Babylon in the past fell. And so we can have hope that even if we're in the midst of the circumstance of suffering, that God has this long plan of redemption and of crushing the enemy, crushing the principalities and the powers that would, um, the, the demonic forces that would separate his people, that would curse and oppress his people. And that those things are integrated into our governmental systems, into our other systems of the world. But just as Babylon fell, Rome will also fall one day. And it did. And it did. And then finally, the third person is Mark. And he says, my son, this should not be taken as a uh, physical son, but as a, a spiritual son. And it's also thought that this is Mark that wrote the gospel according to Mark, which is long thought to be the gospel um, that is mostly influenced by Peter. That it could be Mark is, uh, the gospel of Mark is Peter's rendition of what happened, this eyewitness account of what happened with Jesus that he experienced, that he touched, that he was with. And so Peter here has this family. Peter isn't just this isolated individual, this leader of the church. And the church isn't huge by any means, according to the landmass that it has here. A lot of times we want to become isolated Christians that are doing the work of the Lord by ourselves, or that we don't necessarily want to invite anybody into us. And yet what we see through the New Testament is this movement of leadership and this movement of the body of Christ. That it's not just Peter and Paul doing everything, even though we have all of this information about them, but there's these other unnamed men and women of God that are doing just as much an important and significant work for the kingdom as these named people. And just because their names aren't in the text or in history, doesn't mean that God doesn't see them. And especially in a culture where, uh, right now, where we feel like we have to always be seen to be validated, hear again that God sees you. And that as he calls you to do your part, maybe you're not the apostle giving this message to the, to the, the church in Turkey. Maybe you're Silas. And you're partnering with him and you're doing this super important work of writing down the scripture or carrying the message into that. There is not this, you know, Paul and Peter are better than Silas and Timothy. There isn't this hierarchical thing, even if there is some kind of flow of authority. That you, doing the most simplest thing in obedience and faith to Christ, are just as important as Billy Graham, or just as important as 
whatever famous church people are now, or infamous as the past couple years have shown, that you have a part and a place in the kingdom of God and that God sees you in those places and that we need to stay connected with one another and not go and be this lone rogue wolf with uh, just our own trying to secure our own significance um, for ourselves rather than trusting and believing in the Father's love for us. By Silas, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Have you, um, have you ever thought about how we got, like, have you ever taken a minute and thought about how we got this? How we got this scripture? And there's whole studies as to canon formation and everything. But it's amazing. And it's beautiful. And it's mysterious. You know, we have these apostles. We have Peter and Paul and others that are working with them that were these, and John, that had these eyewitnesses, this eyewitness account that they touched physically. As much as, as much as you can touch yourself, they touched Jesus. They heard his voice, not through the Spirit or not through that quiet uh, voice inside of us, but like as, as Josh speaks to me, they heard Jesus' voice like that. And they saw him bleed and they saw him die. And they had this message and they were trying to figure out who he was. And they believed in him and they saw his resurrected body. And then they went and they were moved by the Holy Spirit in a unique way to write these letters. And yet they were still people. They still had their worldviews. They still had things they were figuring out. But yet there was this uniqueness to these letters that the church uh, uh, made authoritative to some degree. That said that this is, the scripture is authoritative in the life of the church. And these stories talk about Jesus. And they talk about who Christ is. And so these letters were written and then they were taken by Silas and other people and Timothy and spread all over the place. And then they were copied. Hundreds, thousands maybe, copies of the scriptures. Sent all over the place. And then with those sacred scriptures as the church defined, there was also this idea of there were these other texts that would come in that would use the name of an apostle that really wasn't by an apostle or trying to say something that was uh, according to the rule of faith in the early church heretical or something that was not conveying who the true Christ was and so the church had to decide what letters at some point what letters are we to keep what letters are we to scrap what letters are good that maybe Josh wrote to the body of Cornerstone that were great, but they, it wasn't the same thing. It wasn't the same thing as what we have from these apostles and their eyewitness accounts. And they're good, and we should read them. But, but they weren't scripture, so to speak. And then there was times, decades, hundreds of years, where other uh, religions or non-religions tried to destroy and burn the scriptures. And that there were monks in the Catholic tradition that were there trying to scribe these out to kind of preserve and take care of these scriptures. And then again, at some point, there was this idea that the church had to define what the canon was. How did we 
get this. Because there's a lot more writings than this. How did the church, by the rule of faith, by trusting in Jesus, how did they know that it was these letters? That it was these stories? And then even with the Gospels, the Gospels weren't even just a letter. They were crafted. That there was purpose and intent for this audience and how they talked about, we want to tell you the story of Jesus and we're going to tell it in this way. And it's good and it's true. And yet we have four Gospels that sometimes some of the details don't line up all the time. And yet the Gospels still reveal the truth about who Jesus is. And the Gospels still tell us about how and what he taught us to obey and to submit to him. And there's just this mystery to the beauty of the scripture and to its authority that we have. I'm not here to answer or to say, um, you know, what is the definitive thing as far as, well, how did we get this? How do we know that this is the word of God or that these scriptures are trustworthy uh, in order to uh, produce in us and train us up in righteousness and to tell the story of Christ? I'm not here to say anything about that. What I am here to say is that the scriptures talk and speak to us authoritatively about who Jesus is. And many times we can approach the scriptures in ways that can be unhealthy, where we're looking for them to do something that they're not meant to do, or we're not looking at them at all. That they are just another book. The scriptures are this beautiful stewardship of the message of Christ between the church, which the scriptures say is God's people and God's household, and the church is the living church of God, and the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. The church is the pillar and the foundation of truth. Do we believe that the church is the pillar and the foundation of truth? And there's a hundred other things that we might believe are the pillar and the foundation of truth. But what does that mean for the church to be the pillar and the foundation of truth? We have been entrusted, the church has been entrusted with this story of the Messiah. With the scriptures and the development of the scriptures where divinity and humanity dwell together. And it's the message of the living Christ that holds all of these things together. Leslie Newbegin is a gentleman that died uh, early at the turn of the 21st century. And he was a European was into history, he was a missionary, he was a statesman, he was a pastor, he was a theologian. He says this, he says, above all the Bible taken as a whole and in its canonical form, so meaning as we have it, is a unique interpretation of cosmic and human history in which the human person is seen as a responsible actor in human history, always being called to respond to the initiatives of the one who is both creator and savior. This book is unique. None of the other sacred scriptures of the world's greatest religions have a character anything like this. Greet one another with a kiss of love. That the scriptures are not here just to have some kind of intellectual banter about, which is great and I enjoy, and that we should talk about the scriptures more. But how do, they, how do we take them in? How do we chew on them? And how do they inform how we live, and how we love the people around us and the one true God as revealed in Jesus Christ. Because we can go ahead and we can say, I believe the Bible is the word of God. We can go ahead and say, I believe the Bible is authoritative. In this way, in that way, whatever. 
but is there fruit? We can say that and yet never go to it. We can say that and think that and believe that and yet not be in the book in community with one another or we're just there on Sundays. So, briefly, the first sermon I did on 1 Peter was about how we approach the scripture. I know all of you remember that back in January because it really affected you and you had a lot to think about. It was this idea that we should approach the scriptures through an incarnational mindset where humanity and divinity come together in the scriptures and tell the story of Jesus Christ. Do we remember what the competing worldviews were or the competing um, extremes were that would want to take us away from an incarnational mindset? Gnosticism is close, but no. No, it's a good guess. We talked about it earlier in our conversations. So these isms of fundamentalism and liberalism. Okay, so we are all children of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was this age uh, a couple hundred years ago, and um, there was a shift in culture for many reasons. One of the slogans of the Enlightenment was by the philosopher Descartes. Who remembers his famous slogan? Anybody? I think, therefore, I am. I think, therefore, I am. And so the age of the Enlightenment had a ton of good stuff about it. Just as the Reformation had a ton of good stuff about it, did the Reformation have a ton of crap in it? Yes. And so one of the things um, that this age of the Enlightenment did is that it actually darkened our theological mind. Because what it did is that it elevated the intellectual endeavors of reason and rationality to a place that couldn't be touched with sin. So if I could figure out rationally and reasonably um, X plus Y equals T in theological realms, then um, there was no way to argue with that. And so this idea that, uh, while not everybody thought the same and not everybody was right, there was still this elevation almost to a pedestal where rationality could not be touched and reason could not be touched by sin or by, or, or by anything that would maybe corrupt it. And yet, and yet the scriptures say, which came many, many, many years before that, there, there is a way that seems right to a person, and yet in the end it leads to what? It leads to death. At this time where knowledge and thinking about things were not the, the, the culture of the day, there was this overswing, again, which we love, which is Gnosticism, this idea of going from one extreme to another. And so what happened here is that out of this, I think, therefore, I am, theologically speaking, don't hear me say politically during this time, that there was a misplacing of salvation primarily on knowledge rather than on faith and trusting in the person of Jesus Christ as revealed in the scriptures. And then this devolved into the two streams that we have, of fundamentalism and liberalism. And each of these have their strengths, right? Fundamentalism, fundamental. The core, the essence, the things that are firm. We need those in our lives and in our society, right? Yes. Liberalism, this idea of freedom. This idea of exploration, this idea of thinking a different way than I've thought before. Is that important? Absolutely. But the problem is, is when these things get idolized and they become isms. And that we're from this camp. We're from, we're from this camp. 
and we kind of shut our hearts off and we shut our minds off to what uh, the Spirit of God would be speaking to us in this place. And we've done this with, with the Scripture too. The fundamentalist strength is that it stands firm in what it thinks it knows, but then it turns into a bear trap that you can't get out of. Because new thoughts or unknown truths or living out Jesus' commands in a different context, those questions come up. And then the fundamentalism that might be present in us once that, well, if, if, if I question this thing that I thought was a core thing and it's actually not a core thing, the whole thing is going to fall. That all of my faith is going to fall, which then begs the question, what was my faith and trust in to begin with? Was it in some kind of a statement? Or was it in what I believe is to be a person that is still alive today that was resurrected from the dead that these scriptures talk about? In fundamentalism, there's this threat of insecurity. I need to stay secure in order to be right with God. It's idle is certainty and control of being able to know everything And yet, can we know everything? No. We can't know everything. And part of the authority and the living and active component of the scripture is that it calls us into a posture of learning all the time. Jesus, over and over again, you've heard it said this, let me tell you it a different way. Leslie Newbegin again says, through the Bible, old beliefs are called into question. The variety of biblical material, both Old and New Testament, demand critical activity, that we need to be thinking about these things. That's not like uh, uh, Ron Papil set it and forget it timer of making chicken. We just set it, forget it, and it's good. It'll take care of itself. That there's a constant interaction that we need to have with the world around us. How is the, uh, the, the ferocity of Joshua's campaign in the scriptures, to be reconciled with the Sermon on the Mount? How is the exclusiveness of Ezra and Nehemiah to be reconciled with the universalism of Ruth and Jonah? How do we relate Paul's description of Roman power as God's servant, then with the identification of that same power with the work of Satan and in Revelation? And then practically, if I'm trying so hard to be right all the time, you know what's really hard for me to do? be wrong, to repent. Because being right is what I think the Christian faith is about. And I have been, and at certain times, I still definitely am at that place where I have this idol of certainty. But then we have the other side of things. The liberalist strength is the acceptance of new thought and unconceived truth. But then it turns into a factory of hypothetical truths that churn over and over again and nothing can be grasped onto because, you know, we'll just wait for the next truth to come by. Its idol is cynicism, a skepticism that there is even a truth that matters. Just thinking about the possibilities of the the infiniteness of knowledge is sufficient for life to the liberalists. That that's enough. It's not that I have to hear, greet one another with a kiss of love, and then do it. It's I can just keep it up here. I can keep, that's a thought. Well, maybe there's another thought where that kiss makes me uncomfortable. I want to hear a different view on that. And yet the word of God and the commands of Jesus and the scripture call us into obedience. And yet, do we need to know 
what that means and, and interpret that correctly, yeah. But this goes back to the foundation of how we're even approaching truth in that. Liberalists also don't, need for, don't have a need for repentance because everything is always up for grabs. Paul warns Timothy in the scriptures to be careful of this mindset, of always learning and never coming to a knowledge of some solid truth, of being devoted to endless discussions of myths and spiritual pedigrees, which only promote meaningless speculations and don't advance God's work, which is by faith. Both, each of us have both of these things on our shoulders. We have this, this, this fundamentalist guy over here whispering into our ears. And then we have this liberalist guy over here listening into our ears. And it's one of those things that we can go back and forth so much, and it depends on how we grew up. I asked you, how was your life growing up? Were you more fundamentalist? And now have you gone towards more uh, liberating? Were you a liberalist and you've come to something more that you can actually grab onto? And there is this journey in the midst of this that we're part of. And the only thing that actually grounds us is the fact that Jesus Christ is the word of God and he is alive and active and speaking to us. And we can say, well, how do I know that? By faith. By trust. Not by skepticism and and cynicalism and not by certainty. There are very, 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 very few places that it talks about being certain in Scripture. There's a whole lot of places that it talks about trusting in Jesus and the message of the gospel. The righteous should live by walking in rightness. The righteous should live by walking in faith. By walking in what I would say in trust, in believing loyalty of this message of Jesus Christ. Again, new begin. If the biblical story is true, the kind of certainty proper to a human being will be one which rests on the fidelity of God, on God's faithfulness, not upon the competence of human beings, of human knowers. It will be a kind of certainty that is inseparable from gratitude and trust. Okay, this kind of certainty will be something that's inseparable from gratitude and trust. There is still a vast ocean of what we do not know and do not understand. But we know the way, and the way is Jesus. The confidence proper to a Christian is not the confidence of one who claims possession of demonstrable and unquestionable knowledge. It is the confidence of one who has heard and answered the call that comes from the God through whom all things were made. And that call is this, follow me. Follow me. Worship team, you guys can come back up for a song of response. And so in the end, we can be confident explorers of life and the scriptures. We can be confident, you know, not certain, not cynical, but confident in our lives, being taught how to obey everything based off of Jesus. We not only ask questions of Jesus in the scripture, but Jesus in the scripture asks questions of us that we have to respond to. It's not just like we put the scriptures over here and we study it and we ask it questions about, um, you know, this or that or the other thing. That the scriptures and the spirit of Christ also talk to us and ask us questions in our lives. 
and that it's calling for a response from us. And that response has to be lived out in truth, not by thinking you know everything or have the knowledge of everything. And it can't also be based off of nothing is attainable, that nothing is able to be grasped. But it still has to be through faith and through trust. One of the questions that um, Jesus asks that Angie is going to read is he's speaking to the religious leaders who thought they knew all the answers. Who thought that they were right and knew all the answers. And he's basically saying, why don't you see me, the person of Jesus? I'm right here in front of you. John the Baptist testified about me. This prophet that at one point you were listening to. There were these miracles that happened through the power of the Father, through the power of Yahweh that I, Jesus, performed that testify about who I am. There are the scriptures that you search so diligently and yet you're not seeing me right here. And then the question at the end of the section is, whose glory are you really seeking? Whose glory are we seeking? Are we seeking glory from um, men and women in our lives, or are we seeking glory from the Eternal One, as revealed in Jesus Christ? Are we willing to put our trust and into that rather than our, our trust into a hundred million other thoughts and opinions that are around us? And are we willing to respond in those things as the Father calls to us and says, you know what? You don't always seek my glory, and I love you anyway. Follow me. Do you think the disciples knew what they were getting into? Uh-uh. But this idea of trusting and following in the person of Jesus Christ is what it all comes down to. And we know of that story through the scriptures that we can rest in, that we can dialogue about, that we can fight over. But let us also know that there's something of the word of God in the person of Jesus Christ that reveals his story in the word of God that is the scriptures. So I'm going to ask Angie to, um, to, to read this passage, and then we're going to respond uh, with a song. And let us pray in our song of response here um, for God to have mercy on us and to transform us when we do the same things that we see in the scriptures of not actually trusting and believing and following Jesus. Because this, this story is also our story as well. Angie, if you want, if you would, uh, we are going to sing Overflow. It's in the booklets. What number is it? 18. Uh, Feel free to get the booklets if you need to. And listen to the word of God uh, spoken uh, through John 5, 31 to 44.